the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This episode is a rebroadcast of The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Coming up this hour, we're talking about celebrity pastors, narcissism, and how the church can get better. And then we're talking with Dr. Beth Allison Barr and her new book, The Making of Biblical Womanhood, How the Subjugation of Women Became Gospel Truth. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. I'm joined by my co-host, Brian Fromm. My name is Aubrey Sampson, and we uh, have another fun conversation, Brian. Uh, We're talking about another celebrity pastor, or the same celebrity pastor we've actually talked about a few times on (laughs) here, Carl Lenz, but another accusation of sexual abuse uh, by his nanny. And here's what I want to say. We don't want to keep like hammering Carl Lenz. That's that's not our goal is to like beat him or Hillsong to the ground. We love Hillsong Church. But I do think this is another conversation about how this keeps happening. Why uh, celebrity pastors seem to be allowed to get away with things that other pastors and other just human beings aren't. Mm-hmm. And then how can the church get better? So... um Carl Lenz's former nanny came out saying that she experienced sexual abuse while living in the Lenz home, that there were inappropriate text messages, there was inappropriate touching. And because of the power dynamic, she didn't feel comfortable saying anything. And again, I I don't know what you think about this, Brian. Well, actually, I probably do know what you think about this. But (laughs) it's like, you know, you hear these stories, like the story came out that Carl Lenz was having a secret affair with a woman. And it's just, it seems like every time there's one story, there's a hundred stories behind it. And it's so discouraging. What did you think when you saw this? Yeah. uh, First, when I saw it, I was like, uh, not not surprised anymore from listening to these stories. I think you make a great point that we're not trying to just beat down Carl Lentz or Hillsong. But here's the deal. Uh, We do feel like on our show that we do have a little bit of a platform here to be able to highlight things that are wrong in the church culture. And, and ask the question, not only how can we do better, but just to challenge people and say, we have to do better. Right. Like, because there is, we talked in the first hour about Mark Driscoll and, and we talk, uh, about other things. You know, the, we often joke how the very first segment of the show two and a half years ago was about James McDonald and Harvest right here in our own backyard. And then wow. about Bill Hybels and Willow Creek. And, uh, what we want to say as we continue to look at this Carl Lentz story is, how does somebody like him, who was clearly a narcissist, his boss has labeled him a narcissist, right. he was clearly doing things uh, that, like you said, no pastor should be allowed to do, but it was being kind of uh, – like it was being allowed over time. There were whispers about it because there was so much quote unquote fruit. And that's always the problem, right? It's always, well, a little narcissism, a little abuse, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Oh, they might lie a little bit, but look what God's doing in right. our church. Look at how the church is growing. Look at how lives are changing. Yes, but eventually, and this, if there's anything that kind of defines our show when we talk about this, it's this next line. Character matters. 
Like mm. your integrity matters, especially as a leader, yes. as a pastor. And if you're a church that turns a blind eye to, to character deficiencies, deficiencies of integrity, that's going to come back and get you. Like it's going to happen at some point. We see that over and over. It might not be weeks. It might not even be months. It might be years, but it's going to come back to get yep. you. And, and it's going to uh, create such a uh, such dramatic results, negative results within your church that it's just not worth the quote unquote fruit. And that's why Carl Lentz has become like a bit of a, you know, a lightning rod for this. Right. Because like you said, uh, once the once the dam broke here, everything's coming out. It's kind yes. of the same way we've seen with other pastors. And you just go, how was this ever allowed for a month, a year, 10 years? And the answer always comes back to, did you hear him preach? Uh, did you see how many celebrities were coming? Did you see, right. gosh, they were in the middle of, of Manhattan and there was a line of people to get into church every Sunday. Like there, people dismiss it. And then until it's too late and then you go, man, yeah, how did we let a narcissist, a how sexual did we abuser, let this happen? whatever. And it happens over and over again. And I know people might be tired of listening. You and I are tired of talking about it. Seriously, it's so discouraging to come up against another story, but we feel like we need to talk about it. There's actually um, a clip here of Brian Houston, who is, you know, the founder, the head really of Hillsong. And um, he's talking about Carl Lentz. This was from a meeting of church executives and top donors that was held in November. I wanted to play a little bit of this N again, not to look like beat Carl Lentz down, but because it gives us a picture of some of the things they knew and some of the things they didn't know. So here's that clip. Just a, a difficult man to have any kind of, um, what's the word, direct conversation with. Uh, because it was always defensive. It would always be put back on the other person as though they're the ones with the problem. And so they, they were not easy meetings. And I was already at the point um, uh, at the end of summer that I felt like Carl, Carl and Laura's time in New York was coming to an end. Um, and then, of course, uh, what ha actually happened is that uh, Tulu. Uh, had a conversation with one of the staff members and that staff member had found very compromising chain of text messages on uh, Carl's laptop or computer. And so that person went straight to Tulu. And to her credit, Tulu, the first thing she did was call me. Uh, I knew it was an urgent call because it was very late at night and, you know, she needed to talk. So again, that's that's Brian Houston just talking mm -hmm. about how he knew that Lentz was a difficult man to have a conversation with. He calls him a narcissist. Later on, we didn't play this, but later on, he says that he found out there was more than one affair. They were significant affairs um, and that apparently the Houstons didn't know until someone finally came forward. But the reality is, is it does seem like they knew this man was a narcissist and knew this man was difficult. Yes. And so that goes back to what you're saying, Brian, before is that how do these quote unquote powerful celebrity pastors, how are they allowed to get away with this when other pastors aren't? And then what do we do? I think ultimately, right. like, what do we do going forward so this doesn't keep being part of our story? Yeah, I think one of the answers to that question is we have the wrong scorecard. Hmm. So as churches, if you ask anybody, uh, not most people, if you say, what is a successful church? 
right? What are the immediate answers? It, the number one answer, if this were family food, feud, the number one answer would always be lots of people. The church is growing. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Uh, lots of money, big building, program, whatever else. Carl Lentz produced a lot of people. Yeah. Carl uh, Lentz produced a lot of uh, buzz around the church. Carl yeah. Lentz produced, he was on TV all the time. Yeah. Uh, they produce these types of things. And so therefore, when that is your met your scorecard, you start to turn a blind eye to things like character and integrity. And I would just say to church leaders out there right now, if you know there are character deficiencies, no pastor's perfect. No pastor's perfect, right? But if you but you all know what I mean when you say when I say character deficiencies. If you know that there are character deficiencies out there, you got to do the hard work of like, you know what, even if this is going to shrink our church, even if this for the health of our church, we need to do this for what it means to be a pastor. Like we got to go back to the New Testament and what it says a pastor is supposed to be mm. and what a pastor does. And I would also encourage pastors out there, if you're in a bad spot, again, you don't need to be perfect. But if you know you're in a bad spot, like give a hard thought to at least taking some time away. Yeah. And, uh, and go to your elders if you have elders and just say, you guys, I'm burnt out. I'm seeing some stuff in my soul that's not good. I need help. You don't have to carry this alone either. Y you've right. got a team of people ideally around you that's there to help you step back if if things aren't going well. Absolutely. And so uh, it, it's a it's a cautionary tale. We'll put yeah. it like that. Yeah, uh, it's a hard story to talk about, but it's an important one that I think we need to keep wrestling with. Yeah, let's keep wrestling with it, even though we don't like it. Right, Brian? Well, That's coming right. up next, we are so excited to have Dr. Beth Allison Barr join us. She is an associate dean for professional development, professor at Baylor. She's also the author of a new really exciting book that seems to be making a lot of waves called The Making of Biblical Womanhood. And so be sure to join us next on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today. Uh, and Aubrey and I are thrilled to be joined by Dr. Beth Allison Barr. She's the Associate Dean and Professor of History at Baylor University. She's also the author of a new book uh, that, as we were talking off the air, uh, is is widely talked about yeah. at the moment. It, the title of that book is The Making of Biblical Womanhood, How the Subjugation of Women Became Gospel Truth. Beth, we're so thrilled to have you on. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's absolutely our pleasure. And Beth, before we dive into this book and everything else, why don't you just introduce yourself to our audience so they can get to know you a little better? Yeah. So I, before this, before this book came out, I was a mostly obscure medieval historian who worked on 15th century sermons. And I'm also been a pastor's wife ever as long as I've been an academic, I've been married to a pastor. Um, and so this book really kind of brings those worlds together. Hmm. So, Beth, that's actually what I want to talk to you about. So you've gone from really uh, researching, investing in medieval history, and now you're writing this book that thankfully is growing in a lot of popularity. Um, the Making of Biblical Womanhood, again, is the title. Talk to us about what led you to write it. Yes. So I really never intended to write this book. Um, this book in some ways was kind of born out of, uh, can I say desperation? Mm -hmm. Just simply the realization that there was so much that I knew as an academic um, that could shift the conversation about women in the church. And it's not just me that knew it. It is so many 
faithful Christian academics um, who have been writing and talking about women's roles in the church from a different perspective for quite a long time. But that perspective was not filtering into the into the evangelical church. We have a distribution problem, as we talked mm. about it. And it seemed to me that the situation had become dire enough that something needed to be done. So, yeah. And so, Beth, as we think about that, I, I would just love to know kind of uh, the overarching premise. What is it that you think is go- is wrong in the church's understanding, and especially the understanding of complementarianism uh, through the through the generations? What, what do you think we've been getting wrong in the church? Yeah, so that's actually pretty easy to answer. Um, it's the basic premise of my book, and mm-hmm. that is that our current understanding of women's roles as being divinely ordained to be under the authority of men, um, that this is not a biblical view, that mm-hmm. we argue that it's biblical, but I argue that it is constructed in history um, mm-hmm. and that we can trace its historical construction over time um, and show that what Christians have done today is we have read things into the text instead of actually really doing what we claim to be doing. And that is understanding the Bible on its own terms. Wow. That's so good that you're doing this work, Beth. Um, okay. Can you, I, you know, I don't want to spoil the content of the book, <laughs> but could you, you know, give, give our listeners an example of that where we have uh, read our own, you know, understanding onto the text, but perhaps what the text is actually saying. Yeah. Um, one of, I think the most, um, famous, infamous, I don't know at this point, discussions that I have is about Paul, obviously. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's my discussion about 1 Corinthians 14. Mm -hmm. And this is the passage where Paul is talking about prophecy and tongues and how we're supposed to um, do that in the church. And all of a sudden he has this moment where he stops and seems to be talking to women. And he says, you know, women, why are you talking in church, why don't you just ask your husband those things at home? And it's this very abrupt sort of um, sort of uh, insertion into the text that scholars have been debating about for a long time. Like, what is Paul doing here? And I had the epiphany, and I'm not the only one who had this epiphany, um, but I had the epiphany many, many years ago when I was teaching a parallel text. Um, from Livy in my women's history class. And I realized that the speech that Livy records there from a Roman um, guy named Cato, that it sounds really familiar to those words in 1 Corinthians 14. And in exploring this, what I begin to realize is that what Paul is doing in that text is he's not telling women to be silent and ask their husbands at home, but he's actually quoting the Roman world. These Mm. are Roman words that he is bringing into the text to refute them. Because immediately afterwards, he says, what are you, you know, are you the only ones who the word of God has reached? I mean, it's this really weird sort of thing. And it makes a whole lot of historical sense if we realize that Paul is quoting the Roman world, a practice that the Corinthians are doing, and then saying, why are you doing this? This is not what we do in the body of Christ. Hmm. Uh, you know, Beth, when I've been taught, uh, whether in school or in churches I've been a part of, uh, complementarianism, Paul's words are super important, but it's also been, it's usually been rooted back in the very beginning, Genesis yeah. one through three. The uh, so I, yeah, I'd love to know how you tackle that because oftentimes in complementarianism, what I'll hear is what they'll say is, um, no, I wish it was only about Paul, but it actually goes back well before that, before any of that. And so therefore this is kind of more God's design. So how do you talk right. about Genesis one through three? 
Yeah, well, I mean, I would actually argue that it is still rooted in Paul, that what they are doing is they are taking a reading of 1 Corinthians um, 11 that talks about that, um, that, you know, Christ, that the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. And then they take that hierarchical, the way that they interpret it as a hierarchical reading in 1 Corinthians, and then take that back to Genesis. Um, and then interpret sort of the um, the creation story through that. There's a couple of big problems with that. First of all, um, I think in 1 Corinthians 11, that we are reading hierarchy into that text. Um, there's been a lot of scholarly discussion about this, that this text, again, what Paul is doing is he's saying, look, this is the Roman world in which we live, but we have to do it the Jesus way. And that hierarchy is not the Jesus way. Um, right. And so there's a lot of scholars that have discussed this, like Lucy Pepiat, Scott McKnight. Mm-hmm. They do a wonderful job with this. Mm-hmm. Um, but then if we look back at Genesis, one of the funny things about reading creation into that is a lot of it says, look, you know, here is God and he creates the animals and he creates the earth and all of this stuff. And then he creates Adam and he puts Adam over all of this stuff um, and Adam's in charge of it. Well, then, I mean, this is actually really funny. The problem is that if you read hierarchy into that, then, and hierarchy is built into creation order. So when God creates and the people, you know, he creates somebody who's over the rest of it. Well, the last person he creates is Eve. Right, um, right. And I mean, this is really ironic to me. I'm like, and I'm not the first one who's talked about this. Yeah. Uh, there's people are like, this just doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. Um, this clearly isn't. I mean, what God does is he creates humanity, gives humanity charge over the earth, and then humanity gets split into the male and the female. Um, and I mean, there's not hierarchy in this. Even Russell Moore argues that there is not hierarchy in the beginning of Genesis, even though Russell Moore would still come to a complementarian understanding. Yeah. So I would say that reading hierarchy into Genesis is um, adding to the text and it's pulling from a wrong reading of Paul and then applying that backwards to mm. Genesis. This is such good stuff, Beth. Um, obviously, this is an important conversation I mean, it's an important conversation, period, because we've seen the devastating effects for women. Women haven't been allowed yes. to lead. Women have been silenced. Yeah. Women have been abused. Um, it seems very important for such a time as this, as yes. more and more stories are coming out about church abuse and church scandals. And I guess th- this is a big question for you to answer, Beth, but I'm wondering how can we get better? Yeah, no, that is a big question. Well, I think one of the things we can do, and that's really what I'm trying to point people towards in the book, is thinking about the implications of our theology. Um, what we believe matters. Ideas matter. And when we believe that there is something inherent about the way women are created, that they are eternally put under the power of men, this has theological implications. It also has reality implications. And the reality of that is that men treat women as less. Mm. Um, and so I think that's something, how can we get better is we can understand that those ideas matter and start thinking about why we believe those ideas. Yeah. Yeah, we're thrilled to be joined by Dr. Beth Allison Barr, Associate Dean and Professor of History at Baylor University, also the author of a widely discussed new book called The Making of Biblical Womanhood. I would love to talk to you about uh, biblical interpretation. Yes. Uh, people out there wondering, how then do I know when things I read in the Bible are bound by culture? And when do I know when things are timeless, when things are they apply across times? How do you answer that question about biblical interpretation? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so one of the things that you can do is um, what I call, you know, 
consistency is an interpretive virtue. This is something that you will hear all sorts of biblical scholars talk about. um, And even any, any sort of academics will talk about this. And so one of the things you can do is simply say, okay, so does this match? Like if I see my reading of Paul as being hierarchical and arguing that women are under the authority of men and shouldn't have leadership, does this match what else Paul teaches? And if you look in Paul and you look, say, also in Corinthians, where he talks about all of the people in the church have gifts and those gifts in giving out those gifts, there is no discussion of gender or hierarchy in any of those gifts. That might give you pause. And then if you look at Romans 16 and you see all of the women who are in leadership positions and you realize that Phoebe um, was given Romans as a messenger and taken, which meant that she was the first preacher of Romans, um, then you're like, well, that is not consistent with what I am reading into the hierarchy of Paul. Um, and then if you take that out even further and look at Jesus and look at how Jesus treats women, and then you can be like, well, that really doesn't match. So is the Bible wrong or am I wrong? Hmm. And I always think that probably it's me. Yeah, <laughs> that's probably right. It's probably not the Bible. It's probably not God. It's probably me. I feel like that's a fair yes. posture for all of us to have. Um, Beth, I want to ask you a personal question, if that's okay. Um, yes. You know, I'm a woman in leadership. I'm a woman who preaches. I get lots of direct messages from strangers <laughs> who like to quote scripture at me or tell me things yes. they feel about me. And I'm imagining on the scale your book is growing that you are getting lots of positive, encouraging feedback and lots of negative feedback. And I just wonder, how are you navigating that? Um, as carefully as possible. <laughs> um, it's, it is difficult. I never, int- I never expected it to be this big this quickly. Mm. And so I, it did sort of catch me off guard. Um, and so I'm learning as I go along. I also am really trying to stay in sort of the center. And, you know, part of what I've done here is I've set off conversations and I can't answer all those conversations and I don't need to. People need yeah. to work this out for themselves. And so part of me just needs to resist that sort of teacher impulse in me to jump in and try to help people come to answers. That's not going to help anyone. I just need to sit and just let them talk about it. And so that's what I'm trying to do more and more of. It's hard. Um, But I don't think people really need me anymore. I think they Mm. just need to talk about these ideas and see what happens. Yeah. And Beth, kind of along those lines for, you know, we all know a lot of people out there, uh, men and women who even after this discussion or reading your book will be kind of convictionally complementarian. Like they like, but I want to do this really well. Everything from soft complementarianism to whatever else it might be. Uh, what's your word to them then, you know, them saying, no, you know, I'm, I really believe that complementarianism is what our calling is. How would you then um, help them do it well? Like, how do they yeah. still how, how do churches that remain complementarian still hold up women and still do this well, as opposed to some of the abusive ways we talked about earlier? Yeah, well, they really need to think hard about the implications of their beliefs and how that translates into how they treat women in their churches. Um, So one of the things that we clearly see in the Bible is women acting in ministry. And you might argue that their gifts are not exactly the same as men. And I'll, I'll let you argue that. I'll disagree with you, but I'll let you argue that. And I'll be like, okay, does then what we see women doing in the church match in 
in scripture match with what you are allowing women to do in your church? Um, and so that would be one of the things is like really look hard and see where do you where you have women using their gifts and where do you need to have more women using their gifts? Um, I also think if you I would point people towards um, Scott McKnight and Laura Berenger's a church called Tove mm-hmm. and let them think about what happens when you exclude women from the table um, of leadership. That when you don't allow women to be part of the decision making in a church, where you don't allow women's voices to be accepted as the same as men, when we think about the impact of things that happen in the church and what that leads to is women's voices being ignored, women's testimonies being ignored and women bringing to light abusive situations being ignored. And so you've got to put women at the leadership table and recognize their voices to protect other women in your church. Yeah, that's so good, Beth. We actually uh, earlier in the show, we did uh, had two conversations about Carl Lentz and and more abuse allegations that are coming out about him and about Mark Driscoll as well. And, you know, we don't need to sit here and talk about those specific men. But I do think what you bring up is important that because women have been left out of conversations, a lot of these abuse scandals have been allowed to continue or to go on in secrecy. And and I guess the question I have for you is, it feels like a come to Jesus moment for the church. Yes, I think Uh, so. What do we do? You know, how can we continue to allow women to to share their stories? And how can the church get better at, at looking at itself and doing something different? Yeah, well, I think one of the things is we just need to, um, we we need more humility. Um, oftentimes when the church is confronted, and I can even think about it in my own posture as an evangelical, when people confront me with ideas that are different from mine, our posture is to be defensive. Um, mm-hmm. Our posture is to be like, well, I'm right. We want to win. And, you know, Jesus never tries to win. Mm-hmm. Um, Jesus listens and Jesus, um, and I, I think we just need to adopt more of that posture of Jesus. Be like, okay, maybe I, I still stand on my principle here, but that's not going to make me not listen to you. That's not going to make me not recognize your humanity. Mm. That's not going to make me treat you less than I think Jesus would treat you. Yeah. And I think if the church would just do that, if we would listen And so, you know, one of the things that I talk about with my students, um, you know, especially graduate students, you know, they love to get into texts that are new, new books and be like, ooh, let's find what's wrong with this. (laughs) And my thought is that's true. That's part of what being in academia is. But what if instead your posture is, what can I learn from this? Mm. Um, That changes a lot of things. It doesn't mean we accept everything that's in a new idea, but it means instead of trying to argue against it, we are listening to see what we can learn from it and how it might make us better. And the church needs to listen and learn right now. Yeah, yeah. And Beth mentioned a book earlier called The Church Called Tove. We've had Scott McKnight on multiple times to talk about that book. I can't encourage you enough uh, to go out and get that. Beth, we're so grateful for you and coming on. Hey, before we let you go, uh, where are all the places people can find you? Website, <laughs> social media. Uh, if they Google your name, they're going to find a lot right now too. But where, yeah. where else? Yeah. <laughs> that is true. That is true. I, I haven't Googled my name in a while. I probably shouldn't. Um, so on social media, I am on on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and my website, all Beth Allison Barr. 
So if you look at me under Beth Allison Barr, you'll find me in all of those places. Um, I hang out a lot more on Twitter, although it's becoming a less hospitable place at the yes. moment. Right. <laughs> but um, so I've been gravitating towards Instagram because Instagram is really great because you just leave pictures and you don't talk as much. <laughs> so um, anyway, but I'm in all of those places. You can find me on all of those places. Um, you can also find me on Patheos on the Anxious Bench where I write at least once a month. Um, and so you can, can follow this, the story unfolding um, awesome. on Patheos on the Anxious Bench. Wonderful. Best book is called The Making of Biblical Womanhood, How the Subjugation of Women Became Gospel Truth. Even if you've listened to this and think that you disagree with her, I would still encourage you go get the book and read it. Mm -hmm. Be challenged. Allow it to have a conversation with people in your life uh, and you will be better off for it. Beth, it's great to meet you. Thanks so much for joining us yeah, today. Thanks for being here. Yeah, now. thanks for having me. This is great. Absolutely. And you're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. This episode is a rebroadcast of The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm. And we're so glad that you've been with us today. Uh, Brian and I are both pastors. Brian pastors a church called... Four Corners Community Church in, in Darien, Illinois, kind of South Downers Grove. And you, Pastor? Renewal Church in West Chicago, Illinois, alongside my husband, Kevin. And, uh, you know, we've talked about plenty on the show that it has been a hard year and a half for pastors. That's right. And it's been a hard year and a half for churchgoers as well. And over at Christianity Today, a friend of the show, Kate Shelnut, is asking the question, talking about why church can't be the same after the pandemic. And part of that is because after a year and a half, we are bringing the weight of trauma, the weight of tensions that have been building up. We're bringing them to the church building with us. Brian, you guys have been meeting for quite a while now. Is mm -hmm, that correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah, for almost a year by now. Okay. Yes. And has it felt different than it was before uh. the pandemic? A hundred percent. Okay, and so break that down I, for us. I would say this. So last year, um, we started meeting outside. So we did the virtual thing for a long time, like everybody, yeah. and not nearly as long as you guys had to, but we did the virtual thing for a while. And then we moved to about this time last year, meeting outside in the parking lot. Uh, and then it just got to be too hot and kind of some of the stuff changed. Uh, and so we moved it inside. But for the better part of the last year, until about the last month, honestly, it was, you have to sign up. We can only have this many people. Everybody masked for the whole time. So it felt very different. Yeah. Uh, and now we're back to what feels like you're still not 100% normal, but feels much more normal. And, and Aubrey, what I would say, what we're experiencing and what I'm experiencing is um, both kind of this, like there's an excitement to be back. There's an excitement to see one another. And it's very clear that there's a a significant number of people who either uh, haven't come back or mm -hmm. aren't coming back. Right. And that's what makes this so odd. It's this, uh, it's this, how do you wrestle with, uh, like, how do you just put that together? Like, how do you figure out, 
all right, these are our people. This is our church now. Or no, I'm still going to chase those people. And then you've got, you know, the people who still don't want to come because they feel like COVID is still really dangerous. Mm -hmm. And you've got the people who don't want to come because everything's not 100% normal. It's Mm -hmm. just such a weird deal right now. And I know you guys have been much shorter time for for reasons outside of your control. What's it been like for you as you've kind of experienced it? Yeah, we've only been back three Sundays simply because we use a community space as our Sunday morning building. And so they just opened. So that allowed us to just now reopen. And yeah, I mean, it's been it's been really strange. In one sense, it's been kind of amazing because we have almost a brand new church. And so we're like, wow, Lord, you grew the church in the middle of COVID. Only you could do something like that. But then a lot of people just aren't around either because they, um, like you said, they're not quite ready yet. Uh, physically, emotionally, they're just on their guard about COVID, which I totally respect. But some people have just sort of ghosted the church. And I know people leave churches. That's not shocking, but it is a little bit surprising, and I'm hearing this from a lot of my pastor friends, that people you thought were in or people you've walked through as a pastor through some really difficult things in their life or some really important milestones, that suddenly they're just not part of your church and they haven't told you. And that's really, that's kind of an intense experience for a pastor. One of the things this article says, Kate Shelnett at Christianity Today says that the past year and a half didn't just change how Christians met. It changed their hearts and minds toward the church. Barna, the research group, found that a third of practicing Christians had dropped out of church at some point. 29% of senior pastors said they seriously considered quitting Mm. in the past year. What do you think about that, Brian? It doesn't surprise me. Yeah, Yeah. Because so much has changed and so much has been out of our control and so much uh, is outside of your training, to be Mm -hmm. honest with you. like That's true. You know, we joke about like, I didn't go to school. You didn't go to school to know when masks needed to come off or <laughs> right. uh, what, you know, children's ministry should look like in the midst of a pandemic. Or like you said, on a more serious level, how to deal with people who have, I think you used a great phrase, kind of ghosted the church. Because mm-hmm. not only are you like, are they coming back? But you're also kind of thinking, and why don't, why won't they answer my email? Right. What have I done? What happened? Yeah. So I think for a lot of us as ministry leaders, I know this is true for me. uh, You really struggle when anybody leaves your church. Mm -hmm. Right. And so now to have a larger number of people possibly not coming back outside, like for things that have been outside of your control, Mm -hmm. uh, it's just hard. Like there's no other way. And so it doesn't surprise me that people have talked about quitting. And it, it, it continues, though, to surprise me. Uh, maybe I shouldn't be surprised. I didn't think that there would be this still kind of like a uh, large number of people just not doing church anymore. And I guess I was not probably naive in the beginning. I think when people get out of practice, you know, it's it's a it's you, you have this decision of do I want to get back into that? Right. practice? And I do suspect that they're not suspect. I know that there are things for the church at large that we need to learn that there are probably ways and things that we were doing as the church. That once they went away, it it didn't uh, necessarily translate to people going, I need to get back as soon as I can. Yeah. One of the um, things that's quoted here in this article, Kate interviews Colin Hansen, who's an elder at Redeemer Community Church in Birmingham. He says this, we have to retrain people, retrain people from the beginning on why you should bother to assemble at all. Mm -hmm. I think pastors take that for granted and are going to be surprised how many people never had that vision to begin with and never come back when the all clear is given. So Brian, uh, talk to us about that. You're a pastor. Why should people go to church? 
Yeah, that's a that is the sixty four thousand dollar question that I think mm. a lot of us just assumed we knew the answer to. Right. Like, well, you go to church because you go to church, right? Like that's what you're supposed to do. I think the answer still lies in the um uh in the value and in the importance of being linked closely with other believers. Kind mm. of the uh the don't give up meeting together you know um yep. spur one another on to love and good deeds like this kind of idea uh i think the idea of gathering together around the preached word around the sacraments uh around singing together praises to our, i think there's a togetherness that is foundational uh to our um to our christian faith that we've lost over the last year but here's the deal. I think that we also live in a culture where people have gone through the last year going, I'm fine. Like, I didn't go <laughs> right. to church and I'm fine. And I, speaks, I was OK. It didn't, I didn't skip a beat. Yeah. Right. And that speaks to the consumeristic nature of things a little bit. And that and, and we just have to be honest about that. I think we need to get back to speaking of church in the sense of community and mm. the importance of it and also how can you serve other people if it is just about what can people get then they probably don't need to come back there are other ways that people have learned to get what they that's need a good point yeah and, and so that's it with the minute we have what would you say to people as to the importance why regather yeah i mean i would echo what you say that the church is a body of people who are actually together uh practicing the sacraments worshiping God, sitting under the teaching of the Bible, breaking bread together on mission together. And you have to do that in person. We've seen so many problems come because we're isolated or we're doing it online and we're forgetting that embodied nature of the church. And I, I do think this is a moment for us to kind of go back to that Acts 2, like why the church was formed, what the church was about, and remember that we are called as Christians to be contributors to the kingdom and not just consumers of church. And um, I, I, at the same time, I get it. It's been fantastic to have a break on the weekends mm -hmm. as pastors. Mm -hmm. I know you and I understand that, but the Spirit of God has things to do uh, through the church and in the church. And does that when we gather. So go back to church yes. is what Brian and I are saying, <laughs> even, even if it feels different. We'll stick around. We're going to be talking about where we get our source of self-esteem and how do we respond when people threaten our self-image. You're listening to The Common Good. This episode is a rebroadcast of The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey everybody, welcome back to The Common Good on this Monday afternoon. My name is Aubrey Sampson, joined by my co-host Brian Fromm. Brian, you found something interesting on Twitter about self-esteem, about self-worth, and about when people threaten that. And I would love to just hand things over to you. Yeah, and it is really well put. I would also say it's just about who wrote it <laughs> for me. <laughs> the brilliant Tim Keller this wrote Tim it. Keller. Yep. Tim Keller is the founder of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. Uh, he has since handed that over. If, you, if you're especially in the church planting world, I'm sure you feel this way. Uh, I went here. I'll put it this way. I went to a conference once, exponential conference, and they had Tim, Ke Tim Keller speak, and they referred to him as Yoda. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because, that's that's exactly right. That's and he Tim just Keller. sat on a stool and just talked, and he is full of wisdom. And an interesting turn that has happened is Tim Keller has become pretty um, active on Twitter, 
And mm-hmm. I, if you had told me five years ago, uh, make a list of the Christian <laughs> pastors and authors who are going to be active on Twitter, I think Tim Keller would not have made my top Definitely five. Definitely not. You picture him sort of in the library studying, All not time, on social right? media right? with 450,000 followers. I do yeah. like what he writes in his Twitter bio. He said, my son posts here on my behalf as well. Oh, <laughs> so, okay. Okay. Nice. Uh, I would assume that his son gets his okay from his dad to be like, hey, dad, this is coming from you, you know, because... You don't want Keller to have to write later. Well, that was my son. Sorry, that was my that son. Was my son <laughs> yeah. so. Didn't mean that. My if kid did that. Tim Keller is a prolific writer. If you've never read any of his books, I would just Google Tim Keller. And after you buy Aubrey's books, I would go get Tim That's Keller's right. books. Buy mine first before exactly. Tim Keller's books, obviously. And, uh, and it would be good. He wrote this. Uh, if your race and culture or your moral performance or your politics or anything but the love of God is a foundational source of your self-worth. When people threaten that positive self-image, you will not be able to listen to them. You will strike at them. Uh, and so I read this. Aubrey, this ties into the Paul David Tripp tweet mm-hmm. that we read in the first uh, hour. Maybe I'm just needing to hear these things in my own life mm. right now about where is your identity come from? Where yeah. does your self-worth yeah. come from? Because Keller takes it a further step than what Tripp did. And he says... If it's these things other than the love of God, like if the love of God is not your foundational source, if what we talked about in hour one, uh, who God calls you, what your identity is in Christ, if that's not your foundation, if that's not where everything else grows out of, but if it is instead your race, your culture, your moral performance, your politics, and then he gives the caveat or anything else, anything but the love of God. Then not only are you going to struggle because mm-hmm. you're going to you're going to though if those things are your ultimate worth, then Aubrey, if like let's say your ultimate worth is found in uh in your church that you pastor, yeah, yeah, and I go to your church one day and I critique it, I right. just say, hey Aubrey, really enjoyed it, but what's going on here? Mm-hmm. What's going on here? That is no longer helpful critique for you. That is instead, um, that that is instead. Uh, now a shot at your identity, right, your right, worth. Right. I think Keller's onto something as to where this, um, you know, over the past year, we've talked about how politics is no longer about you and I disagreeing about something, but is about now you're my enemy. If, yeah. if I'm a Republican and you're a Democrat, I can't be like, yeah, but we're still good. But if I see you as a child of God and I'm a child of God in Christ, and if you're a Democrat, I'm a Republican, we can argue. Yeah. We can debate. Yeah. But then we can go, all right, I'm glad we're on the same team. Yeah, like, shake you know, hands and respect each other. If I'm primarily defined by my politics, say, mm-hmm. as an example, then if you're different from me on my politics, then you are, you and I are foundationally at odds with each other. Right. And now I can doubt yours, your worth. Yeah. And that goes back to how our politics have become about uh, good and evil, yeah. right and wrong. Right. Uh, and so I think Keller is saying something really, really important here. Where do you find your worth? Because if you find it in the wrong place and somebody critiques that place, and they might not even be doing it on purpose, knowing that you you own it this mm-hmm, deeply, mm-hmm. Uh, you're going to really struggle with that, and you're going to lash out in some in some probably surprising ways. What I appreciate about Keller is he's oh, he always seems to have his finger on culture's pulse yes. really well. Like he's a very good exegeter of culture, and this is American culture right now. 
that that we do identify, we do put our yes. source of our self-worth in our race, in our culture, in our performance, in our politics, in all kinds of things. We do that, period. And that is part of why it feels like there's so much division and anger and vitriol online where we're all fighting with each other because our identities are in the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. Now, of course you care about your race. Of course you care right. about your culture. Of course you care about your moral performance and your politics. Those things matter, but at the end of the day, like you said, Brian, our, our rootedness, our identity has got to be defined by the love of God. Right. And therefore, our foundation is so solid, that's so right. strong, that if anyone attacks those other things about us, we're like, yeah, I mean, that's annoying, but I'm fine because I know who I am mm. before the Father. And th- this, I mean, this is interesting because I think sometimes we can... We can look at the arguments that are having on, people are having online and we can blame this side or that side mm-hmm, or whatever. Mm-hmm. And he's actually going, no, 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 no. Like the heart of these arguments That's is right. something else. The heart of this striking, this lashing out is that our identities are in the wrong place. Yes, absolutely. And, I, and let's I'll help people understand where this plays out for pastors who get this wrong. Uh, when you. Uh, when when my church is growing numerically, mm-hmm. if my self-worth is tied up into my church primarily, yeah. then guess what? I'm going to feel really good about myself <laughs> right, and who I right. am as a person. But what the second my church starts declining mm-hmm. numerically, it's going to not just be, hey, what's going on with the church? Let's try to figure this out. It's going to be crushing to my soul. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, when person X leaves my church and says, hey, it's not even if they were like nice about it. Right. It's not a, it's not you, it's me. Right. You know this crushing to yes. my soul. Yes. But when that new visitor comes, I'm the greatest pastor yeah. ever. Look at me. And what becomes difficult is that roller coaster. It's why parents uh, parents. It's why pastors flame out one reason because yeah. you just that roller and I'm guilty as charged. Right. I ride that roller right. coaster. Uh but now maybe you're not a pastor, but insert anything in there. Yeah. The behavior of my children. Uh, the the size of my bank account, yes. the um, you know my position at my office, whatever else it might be, or it's just political. My my favorite political party wins the office versus mm-hmm. not. Mm-hmm. Whatever else it might be, when I put my identity and my worth in things that weren't supposed to hold that, at the very best, I'm going to ride a roller coaster that's going to be difficult, and at worst, it's just going to crumble, and and yeah. I'm going to see everybody who disagrees with me then as my enemy. That's why this is so important. Man, we've done this twice today. Our identity in Christ. I think we needed this word, Brian. I think so, because it's our identity in Christ that determines everything, not just where I'm going after I die, Mm. but how I can live my life now. This is so foundational, and and I I would encourage people to think about it because we get it wrong so often. So, okay, Brian, with another like 30 seconds that we have here for anyone who's listening right now and they're just hurting, like they're maybe mm-hmm. their identity is in the wrong places. They recognize it, but they don't know what to do. Do you have any sort of pastoral encouragement for them? Yes, I will tell them. Uh, I would say this to them, uh, that you in Christ are a child of God. And, and I would take time today. Maybe you're a journaler. Take a journal with you. Maybe you're just a person who walks and they take time to actually Think about that phrase. What does it mean that I'm a child of God? Not just, oh, I'm a child of God and move on to your next thing, but kind of like sit in it for mm-hmm. a little bit and, and maybe prayerfully repent of the places where I'm not living out in that Good. identity. Uh, because I think that just understanding that becomes the core. It's it's the fertile soil that everything else grows out of. And yeah. so 
Um, I understand. I would also tell people I understand it. Like I yeah. get it. Yeah. I get trying to find your self-worth and what people think of you or what this happens or how this is going. But man, it really can crumble. It can really be dangerous. Yeah. Coming up next, Terrence Lester is going to join us. He's the author of a book called When We Stand, The Power of Seeking Justice Together. Also the founder of an organization called Love Beyond Walls. We're excited to talk to Terrence next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you joining us today. We are thrilled to be joined by Terrence Lester. Terrence is a minister, community activist, author, founder of an organization called Love Beyond Walls. And we're excited to talk to Terrence about his new book called When We Stand, The Power of Seeking Justice Together. Terrence, thanks so much for joining us. How are you doing today? Brian, thank you for having me. I'm doing amazing. Uh, It's a great, great day to be alive, right? Absolutely. And we're so glad that you're joining us all the way from Atlanta. So glad to have you with the wonders of technology. Hey, Terrence, before we jump into this book that just looks great and talking about your ministry, uh, why don't you introduce yourself to our audience so they can get to know you a little bit? Yeah, so my name is Terrence Lester. I am the founder and executive director of a nonprofit organization called Love Beyond Walls. Uh, We're based in Atlanta, Georgia, and we advocate on behalf of people without an address. Uh, But we also build intentional relationships uh, with this community uh, as a way of helping them to walk out of the experience of homelessness. Uh, We pride ourselves in building relationships, uh, which is so good because we get a chance to surround people with community. That is fantastic. We're going to have to talk more about that in just a minute. First up, I want to talk about your new book, Terrence. It's called When We Stand, The Power of Seeking Justice Together. What made you decide to write this? Yeah, so one of the things that I've noticed over the years is this growing trend of social media trauma, right? (laughs) Uh, we We all pick up our cell phones and we could literally have a great day or really bad day from the content that we consume. Mm. Um, And in most cases, we have all of the injustices in the world in the palm of our hands from Mm. a little smart device. And many times people are overwhelmed when they see all of these things happening in the world and it causes this paralyzation to happen. And what I'm really inspired with why I wrote this book is Uh, to talk to those individuals who feel overwhelmed, who feel the apathy, but also to talk to them about how they can make a difference in community when they connect with other people. Mm, That's fascinating. So uh, to dive into that some more, uh, it says community is a prerequisite to solve injustice. Help people understand that even more. Why do we need to do this in community? Why is community so important? Yeah, because isolation sucks. I mean, <laughs> I mean you, when, when you think about it, uh, any issue that you have a passion for seems really daunting and overwhelming when you're trying to address it alone. Homelessness mm. feels like a mountain when you're tackling it alone. Mm. Sex trafficking, a mountain when you're tackling it alone. Helping kids to find uh, foster parents or stable homes can feel overwhelming if you're trying to go at it alone. Mm. And what I'm arguing in the book is that uh, not only does community give us a chance to, to, to have give us life 
and to inspire us. But we get to uh, give our contributions and offer them up in connection with other people who are offering up their contributions um, to actually make a difference in our local communities. I believe real uh, great national change or global change happens locally. So Uh, it's with connecting with people right next door to you, down the street with you in your church community. Uh, When we come together, we ultimately bring glory to God. But not only that. Uh, we get a chance to help some people along the way. Oh, so good. Um, so your first chapter, Terrence, is called Get Out of Your Bubble. Talk to us about that, because I feel like this is something Brian and I talk about on the show a lot. We're all sort of in this echo chamber bubble, and it is hard to get out. So how do we break out of our bubbles? Yeah, well, I think uh, one of the things that we have to realize is that, um, you know, the bubble itself causes us to be isolated. Mm. And I think um, we need to rediscover the power of proximity and the power of the ministry of presence. Um, If COVID-19 has taught us anything, it's taught us that we need each other. How do we move forward together? How do we address issues together? How do we overcome um, the heaviness of what we've experienced coming out of COVID-19? It's it's through proximity and presence. And I think uh, when we have an opportunity to really live intentionally and choose to enter into spaces uh, where we connect with other people, it not only changes our lives, but it changes the lives of those that we're connected with. So good. Yeah. And Terrence, especially in talking about issues of justice uh, and solving problems, you know, in the community and in our culture, how important is it that that community, that linking arms is across races, across socioeconomic? uh, uh, So how important is that, in your opinion? And how can we do better at that, specifically in the church? Man, I I love the church. And I think uh, the church is poised right now to lead this charge. Um, I love ML King's uh, Uh, thought about the world being a global village and a world house, right? Mm. He's literally (laughs) describing the world as our our address, as our address, right? He's Mm. saying that we're all interconnected. Uh, He was given a sermon. uh, It was 1967. It was his Christmas sermon on peace. And literally, he goes through this whole rhetoric about you can't even wake up without having a global encounter, right? Where did you get your coffee from? Where did you get your uh, shirt from? Your favorite uh, decor in your home? Like, uh, we can't go through our lives without having the contributions of the entire world. And what I'm really hoping people uh, understand specifically in the the church is that we do need to come together. Hmm. We do need to stand in solidarity with one another. We do need to make the issues about the issues and not make each other the issues, right? Hmm. Uh, Because that's how we move forward. Oh, wow. That's such a good word. Okay. So Terrence, you're the founder and the executive director of Love Beyond Walls. Can you talk to us about your mission there and also maybe how you even got started? Yeah. So our mission is uh, simple. Our vision is to create a world where no one is invisible. Mm. Uh, And the reason I say, uh, use this phraseology, invisibility, is because when you think about it, people without an address are walked by, they're overlooked, uh, they're labeled, right, as having some uh, type of mental health issue or addicted to drugs. And many cases, 
people don't understand that people enter into the experience of homelessness from all walks of life. A lot of people lost jobs over the past year. Yeah. A lot of people were furloughed. A lot of people became uh, ill and could mm-hmm. no longer work. I mean, I, m- my wife and I even had a brother to pass away from COVID-19. Um, so, so we sorry. know the, re- yeah, we know the real uh, pains that can derive from just a life event happening. Uh, we like to call ourselves a movement of doers derived from the book of James. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, right? Uh, we want to do the work. We want to uh, love people where they are. We want to notice them. Uh, we want to meet basic needs, but we also want to walk with people out of the experience of homelessness. Not mm-hmm. for them. We're not walking for people, but we're giving them the type of community that causes long, longer term sustainability. That's so good. Again, Terrence Lester is a minister, community activist, author, and founder and executive director of Love Beyond Walls. We've been talking to him about his new book, When We Stand, The Power of Seeking Justice Together. Uh, We were talking about your organization, Love Beyond Walls, specifically targeting and helping uh, the homeless community. I'm just curious, what do you guys actually do? What do you how is it that you actually help somebody get out of homelessness? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I'll just talk about a few ways. Mm -hmm. One is that we help people, uh, you know, get their identification cards. I mean, you Mm -hmm. think about it as like one of my friends would say, I don't even feel like a citizen because I don't have my ID Mm. because you need ID to get other ID. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And without ID, you can't get a job. You can't get housing. You can't open a bank account. Uh, you can't do some. You can't drive a car. You can't do. Yeah. You can't cash a check. You can't do some of the normal things it takes to survive uh, and and live a sustainable life without identification. Mm. Another thing we do is that we teach people life skills. Uh, we help people connect to job opportunities. Sometimes we have our volunteers come in and offer up training in their professional skill sets. Like we've had people uh, train people to be carpenters and train people to be artists and train people to do uh, computer work uh, using technology. Um, We we provide temporary housing, uh, specifically targeting those that we have established a well, uh, a healthy relationship with. Uh, We're all about healthy relationships because what we found out is that the healthier the relationship that we've established with someone, the stronger the possibility for them to escape it hmm. if we walk with them long term. Wow. See, we're not just an organization that gives a bunch of people a bunch of services uh, without the relationship, because if you give a person a bunch of services and they don't have the relationship to sustain after yeah. they've gotten all these things, it's it's easier for them to go back into the experience of homelessness. Oh, that's so good. Um, and Terrence, there's a docu-series right now called the Find Your Why docu-series about the work you're doing. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how our listeners can watch it? Yeah, so it's on our website, uh, org under the Get Educated tab. We love to share videos and uh, things about empathy and homelessness just to help our audience to understand. But this particular series is all about my personal story, you know, the experiences of homelessness that I had when I was a teenager that I overcame, mm. um, you know, how a person or mentor came into my life, how I came to Christ, gave my life to Christ, and then how I actually started this work. 
but it progresses. It, it shows the power of uh, proximity and community, the power of grit. But it also talks about an individual named Mark that we met uh, who was experiencing homelessness, who went from corporate America to homeless back to corporate America from being a part of our community. And it's uh, a powerful story if you want to check it out. That's really good. And uh, Terrence, it's kind of a strange question, but I'll ask it anyway. How do people grow in empathy specifically for the homeless? Like if, if they've never dealt with homelessness, it's never been part of either their life or friends or family. How do we grow in empathy even then for people who are facing homelessness? Yeah, well, I think it's a few things. One, we have to uh, reimagine the experience of homelessness. And what I mean by that is the way that we think about it, right? Um, oftentimes we think about people who are experiencing homelessness as people to be feared mm. or someone mm. who has like abused drugs or alcohol. Yeah. And we forget that these are persons who are our neighbors, that just mm. because a person doesn't have an address does not mean that they're not our neighbor. They are fashioned in the image of God Amen. and they are deserving to have their uh, dignity affirmed just like any and everyone else. Mm. The other thing, too, is realizing that we're all poor in some way. Some mm. people are poor materially. Others of us are poor immaterially. Right. Um, it just so <laughs> happens that we can see visibly other people's poverty and we call that out. But the immaterial poverty that we face um, is the spiritual poverty that I talk about uh, in our in my book and as well as another book that I wrote called I See You that uh, God rescues us from, right? And then the third thing is just realizing that um, you have experienced pain, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Your pain may not be someone else's pain, but you know what pain feels like. And pain is a universal language but, um, because we're all as hearing now and suggests a part of human suffering. And as long mm. as we understand that uh, we can start to use our own pain as a bridge to develop empathy mm. of the pain that someone else may be facing. Mm. So mm. good, Terrence. So I want to go back and ask another question about your book. When we stand the power of seeking justice together, there are some folks out there, some critics out there that tend to think somehow preaching of the gospel and doing, you know, social justice work don't go hand in hand. But what I hear you saying is actually that the togetherness, the community doing this work together actually is a really visible testimony and witness to the power of the gospel. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, as a person of color in this country, I have, I haven't had the privilege of being able to separate my social location from my faith. Mm. I haven't had the the opportunity or the privilege to be able to, to separate what I've experienced as a person of color with discrimination and mistreatment yeah. from actually being a follower of Jesus. Right. Right. Um, that helps me to frame out how I approach uh, you know, partnering with other people in, in communities. I even have a different, uh, I like to view uh, Jesus's struggle as being closely related to those that I'm serving, right? Uh, you think about it, Herod sent out a decree uh, to have all of the first male-born children killed. Yeah. Jesus had to be displaced. Mm -hmm. And the only reason he experienced displacement was because the angel of the Lord 
uh, came and warned his family. Jesus himself experienced uh, displacement. Jesus himself had to utilize people's homes uh, to sleep in because foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. It's all throughout scripture. And what I'm trying to do is look at the stories that aren't being preached, look at the the ways in which Jesus experienced certain things, but also look at how Jesus showed up for those that he forsook his own Jewish tradition uh, and crossed these lines to uh, engage. It says when he saw people that were weary and without like sheep, without a shepherd, he was moved with, with compassion. And that's the type of life that I want to live. I want to live the type of life that when I see people broken in community, they're weary. I want to be moved with compassion like Jesus. Amen. Uh, Terrence, that's inspiring. Hey, before we let you go, thanks so much for being so generous with your time. We've talked about a lot of different organizations, books. Where's everywhere people can get to know you? Social media, websites, books. Where can people find you? Yeah. So if people want to look us up, they can go to lovebeyondwalls.org and look us up there. If they want to follow the organization online, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, that's at lovebeyondwalls. Or if they want to look me up, uh, they can go to I'm Terrence Lester. That's I-M-T-E-R-E-N-C-E-L-E-S-T-E-R. And don't forget to check out the book, When We Stand, The Power of Seeking Justice Together. You can buy that wherever you like to buy books. Great, great. Terrence Lester, again, a founder and executive director of Love Beyond Walls. Also the author of the new book we've been talking about, When We Stand, The Power of Seeking Justice Together. We'd encourage you to go, like we said, Amazon, wherever else where you get that book. Be sure to get that. Terrence, it's great to meet you. Thanks so much for spending time with us today. Thank you, Aubrey. Thank you, Brian. Nice to meet you all. Absolutely. It's our pleasure. You're listening to The Common Good on AIM 1160. Hope for your life. This episode is a rebroadcast of The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey friends, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. And we always like to end the show with some encouragement, Mm -hmm. some inspiration, sometimes some challenge. And we're going to get that from a pastor here by the name of Derwin Gray. Derwin's been on the show before. Uh, he is an ex NFL player who now leads a really big church, North Carolina, I think, Transformation Church. Uh, tell us really briefly. Tell us your funny Derwin Gray story. Oh, okay. I'll try to be quick. I was in an airport a few years ago, and I sit down by this, you know, pretty big black guy and his wife, who I didn't know was his wife at the time, and he's talking about church planting. Well, I'm in church planting, and so I just sort of lean over, like, "Hey, sir, I, you know, I'm not trying to eavesdrop, but my husband and I are church planters, and I just over." heard you talking about church planting and he's so kind and generous and I meet his wife and we talk a little about church planting we have some mutual friends I get home we get on the plane <laughs> of course we have to turn off our phones I get home I'm I'm actually in the airport and I pull up his name and I'm like oh this is like a famous dude Derwin Gray he's an NFL player like you said former NFL player he leads a massive multi-ethnic church That's right. That's and right. he just I mean it goes to show he was so kind to this rando in the airport but had I known who he was I would not have been so bold to approach That's him. so funny we're gonna try to have Derwin on again hopefully we can get to him he's he's got a new book out he's uh he speaks regularly about the multi-ethnic church mm-hmm. and kind of God's design for humanity. And it's just, it's powerful. And so we are looking forward to hopefully talking to him again. You said he, uh, he, uh, 
what, what's the word I'm looking for? You're so nice to even bring this up. Yeah, my next book that's coming out. I'm no, so and he wrote an endorsement for. Yeah, Good. Thank he wrote you an endorsement. Yeah, it was very generous. Aubrey promised her next book I will be able to write an endorsement for. So I'm looking forward we'll to that. We'll see. We'll see, Brian. <laughs> Here, you can endorse my next book as well. <laughs> there we go. I'll write sound? the foreword for your next book, Brian. <laughs> That'll be our little deal. I'm going to win out on that one because, uh, yes. I hardly read books these days, let alone endorse them. So why are we talking about Derwin Gray? He had something really powerful and inspirational to say. This is two minutes long from a sermon that he did. I want you to picture for part of this, he's wearing boxing gloves. And I just love that. And you and I were talking about preachers who don't use notes and just walk around. That's Derwin Gray. Yeah, he's phenomenal. Uh, So I want you to hear this. And then we're going to end the show by reflecting on this. Let's listen to Derwin Gray. For some reason over the last, like, I would say 30 years, it's like we need to protect Jesus. So I'm going to put on my gloves and you know what? A presidential candidate can destroy the Bible. Y'all remember that one? I'm like, hold on. So the church has lasted longer than Nero, longer than the medieval uh, uh, times. And then all of a sudden a politician in 2021 is going to destroy Christianity and the Bible. Is our God that puny? Is our God that weak? So you know what? Man, we had better put on our gloves and we got to fight the culture. We got to jab the culture. We got to jab the culture. See, I don't get to do this anymore because I'm a pastor, but there's a lot of rage up in the brother and I just can't get it out because I can't tackle nobody. I still want to do it even though my back won't let me, but even just, but this is the way we want to protect Jesus. Oh, we got to protect him from the liberals. We got to protect him from the communists. We got to protect him from the capitalists. We got to protect him and protect him. And God is like, you do know I rose from the dead, right? <laughs> hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Uh, you do know that every star you see, 330 million in our galaxy, and there's 330 million galaxies that we know, I protected them all. I walked on the water. I rose from the dead. I died on the cross. I'm the king of kings. So listen, take off your little gloves. Take them off. Take off your little gloves and let's do this instead. Ephesians 4.2. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other. Making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. So we hear a lot about the culture wars, right? We hear a lot about, but but that idea, I never thought about it that way. Yeah. That, that we try to protect Jesus, right? Uh-huh. We try to, we've got to stand up and we've got to fight. And Derwin says, no, Jesus has done okay for himself <laughs> through Nero and the medieval times right. and the enlightenment and all of this stuff. And, and Derwin wants to point us to something better. But what about that whole picture of the boxing gloves and I got to fight. I got to fight the liberals and the communists yeah. and the capitalists and whoever else. And, I, you know, uh, the Muslims and these people. I got to fight people. To defend God. Right. Yeah. And so how do we you know, talk to us about how we do that, like where we so often move towards fighting? I mean, that, that this was a really interesting perspective, like you said, that I hadn't thought about before. But it does kind of if you think about it. It, it seems like let people are like, oh, you know, poor little Jesus. He just can't take care of himself. So yes. I'm going to. And that, that was brand new for me to think about. But we, of course, we fight about whatever side you're on. The fact that we even have sides, you know, <laughs> and we all know what we're talking about when we say that. We fight online or we fight in person. You can't go to a family event now without there being some type of political argument, it seems like. And 
it's it is interesting when you step back and think, am I doing this because I actually really passionately care about this issue or is it because I think it's my holy cause to mm-hmm. defend God? And mm-hmm. I love what Derwin's saying is like, God's good. You know, we just got to love people. And yeah. I don't think he would say don't speak truth. Right. I mean, that's not what this conversation is. It's just the way we have these conversations. What did you think about it? I think you bring up the, the valid point there. It, this is He's not saying, if you follow Derwin Gray on Twitter, you know he has opinions yeah. and he's going to fight. Yeah. This doesn't mean we don't fight for truth. This doesn't mean we don't you know boldly proclaim mm-hmm. the gospel. This doesn't mean any of that stuff. But I think his point is, what's our posture? Right. Like, hey, if I don't fight for Jesus here, Jesus is going to get knocked out. Right. To use the imagery some more. Yeah, like, so good. Oh, it's finally liberalism is going to take him out. Right. So we've got to fight. No, right. uh, well, there's things in liberalism or conservatism or whatever we can stand up uh, against Certainly. and push back against. Certainly. But not for the sake of saving Jesus. Yeah. Jesus is going to be okay. And right. Jesus said his church is going to stand. Like, yeah. it's going to be okay. And so, therefore, I think it's a great way to end the show. He turns to Ephesians 2 and says, gentleness, right? Mm. Respect, humility, mm. and, and to love people. And again, that doesn't mean we don't stand up for what is right or wrong or true or false or whatever else. But it's about posture here. Yeah. And I think Derwin is saying, Pastor Gray is saying, we need to reclaim a posture that says, I'm going to love people. Right, I'm going right. to treat them differently. Right. I'm going to show civility, if right. you will, in even in when I disagree, as opposed yeah. to I'm going to put my gloves on and yeah. I'm going to go to war with people yeah. because Jesus needs my protection. I think those are very different. I felt like another thing he sort of hinted at, too, was like a fear, like I'm afraid this president is going to take my Bible away. I'm mm-hmm. afraid things are going to. And so because of your fear, we lash out with those boxing gloves. And so I feel like another thing he's calling people to is, hey, God is sovereign. God is mm. powerful. God overcame the grave. He overcame the enemy. He holds all of the galaxies and they're safe. And so we can step back and trust that things will work out. Like yes. it will be okay. It doesn't mean we won't have trials. We know we're going to have trials. doesn't mean we won't have hardship. We know we're going to have hardship, but that we can trust at the end, like God is winning this thing. Right. And so uh, our job is to love our neighbors, love our enemies, love strangers so that they come to know Jesus. That's right. So a good word there uh, from pastor Derwin gray uh, on Twitter from one of his sermons. I'd encourage you to go watch it. You can follow Derwin gray. Just put in his name. Uh, again, it's such a unique guy. He's a ex-football player who came to Christ mm-hmm. while in the NFL and then got called into ministry and now is leading a thriving, big, multi-ethnic church in North Carolina called Transformation Church. And is my airport friend. And is your airport <laughs> friend and endorsed your book. And right. so uh, thankful for him. Hopefully we'll have him on again. Wanted to leave that with you today as some inspiration uh, about kind of your posture towards the culture and towards the world. Well, we're glad that you joined us today. For Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.